and again, I think it's important um, that we are increasingly uh, putting the world on fire at the same time that we are increasingly advancing in VR technology. These, these are not accidental parallels. Hello, everyone. My name is Stephen Parton, and you're listening to The Feedback Loop on Singularity Radio, where we keep you up to date on the latest technological trends and how they're impacting the transformation of consciousness and culture. This week, my guest is Nolan Gertz, who is an assistant professor of applied philosophy at the University of Twinta in the Netherlands and the author of several books, including Nihilism and Technology. In this episode, we really dig into the philosophical sides of technology, exploring related concepts such as hedonism, the need for struggle, apathy for the world's challenges, and much more. Ultimately, Nolan proposes that technology is allowing us to stay comfortable and nihilistic while the world burns around us, and that we need to embrace responsibility if we are to restore balance to our lives and to society. If you're looking for optimism, this may not be the best episode for you, but alas, this is good information to get into anyway. So everyone, please welcome to the Feedback Loop, Nolan Gertz. Well, I'm going to warn you now, normally I don't talk nihilism before I've had a pint. So for me at 9 (laughs) a.m., this is going to be an interesting conversation, Uh, but it is a familiar conversation. For that reason, uh, could you just go ahead and give us a foundation by kind of telling everybody about the motivation for writing your 2018 book, Nihilism and Technology? Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. And uh, the, uh, the book, um, it basically started as, as a reaction uh, to what I was uh, encountering here in the Netherlands. Um, the University of Twente, where I'm teaching, uh, the motto here is high-tech human touch, and uh, I, I always uh, found that kind of amusing, uh, and I liked playing off it, uh, especially the, the order of the terms, um, and you, you sort of have uh, every course is designed around technology. It's a, it's a technical university, um, and they had me teaching um, from the beginning in industrial design. And uh, you frequently had as the project, um, you know, sort of a a technology solutionism. So uh, here's a problem, design a technology to fix it. And uh, I was then supposed to teach them, you know, sort of a a brief, you know, here's philosophy of technology, here's ethics of technology. And at some point there would always be sort of a, okay, but, is it, do we really want technology to make people good? Um, you know, you would have a problem like there's pollution on the beach, uh, design something to, let's not say manipulate, uh, persuade, nudge uh, people to, uh, to clean the beach, right? Um, one of the most popular solutions, of course, would be gamification. Um, And it was interesting to me that, you know, the students themselves were sort of aware 
um, that there was a friction in what they were doing, right? That you, you wanted to achieve a certain end, but at the same time, it seemed like the technology as a solution was reproducing the problem itself insofar as if you have to trick people into caring about something, then they don't really care about it. Um, so the technology solutionism actually was reproducing the problem. So this sort of helped to nurture the idea that there was a problem here concerning, um, you know, what do we really care about um, and how do we even recognize it? Because it seems like more and more uh, we were driven by, um, you know, how can I get um, the right technology for the right problem and not about, say, politics, uh, not about how do we get people to be promoting this, this interest on their own, uh, but it was always this sort of um, turn to technology first and then we'll see what happens. <laughs> and, yeah. and you see that, you know, once you, once you start to see it, you see it everywhere, right? Uh, you see it in the climate change debate. Um, increasingly now you see it with COVID. Um, you know, I, I made a joke early in the, in the pandemic that um, if you really wanted people to adopt masks, um, you had to, you know, make them Bluetooth enabled and make them $299. Um, and I was, I was very excited when I saw, uh, I think it was a member of the black eyed peas who, who did actually put his name on a Bluetooth enabled face mask. And it was exactly $299. <laughs> nice. And I bet people bought it as well. Oh yeah. Sold out immediately. Do you think that this is kind of a natural progression though? I mean, when I think of humanity, I think of the tool using species and for hundreds of thousands of years, the tools have advanced, the evolution has not. And, you know, and as the old motto goes, when you're a hammer, everything's a nail. So as as the tool making species, it feels like this is something that is natural, right? We do use the technology to solve our problems because evolution can't evolve fast enough to give us the edge we need to do it ourselves. How do you reconcile that as a natural, you know, progression of the species with an issue that you're seeing philosophically. Yeah, that's uh, that's good. Um, so one of the main uh, pushbacks I would get when I when I started on this uh, project were people saying, uh, including my my colleagues, um, you know, you can't say, um, for example, technology is is bad for humans or hurting humans uh, because humans are technological beings. So there, there's a false dichotomy being drawn between humans and technology. Um, and this was, this was really the first challenge I tried to deal with um, because it, it was important to me, this idea that yes, humans use tools, but does that mean uh, that we have always been technological, right? Mm -hmm. um, and this is again, one of these fascinating things about how we, we sort of retroactively read history in light of the present, right? So if you look at, for example, the history of philosophy, which, which is my domain, so that's what I do, um, technology was not a concern really until World War II. So you have um, discussions in the ancient Greeks, like Plato and Aristotle, uh, where it'll come up 
but it's not it's not thematized, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons for this becomes very clear in Aristotle that um, when we talk about technology today, they talked about human slaves. Mm. And uh, a lot of the even ethical debates we have today about uh, you know robot uprisings really does mirror slave uprising concerns back then. So clearly, again, you have a historical arc where you have this idea that the people who were technological beings were slaves. And this is part of why the ancient Greeks wanted slaves was because they didn't want to be concerned with technology, right? So the whole idea was you do that and then I'm free to be a you know citizen in the agora debating uh, metaphysics. Yeah. So it's interesting because uh, now we have that with like the Roomba, but it's it's a similar idea, right? And even in Roomba advertising, you, you see this uh, this ideal of people finally liberated by the technology to live their lives. So I did want to um, understand this idea that even tech companies seem to express, in, at least in their advertising, um, this idea that technology is meant to liberate you from uh, these chores so that you can be a human being. So it wasn't uh, necessarily that, that even I was pushing this dichotomy as much as Silicon Valley was pushing this dichotomy. Um, and so the idea of things like transhumanism and uh, singularitarianism, um, you know, sort of sort of arrive as a as a separate way of thinking. Um, but again, it's interesting. There are other theories. Um, like there's a Dutch historian, Heisinga, who argues that we are not uh, primarily tool being, uh, we are, uh, uh, what's it called, ludic being, we are play beings. Mm. Uh, uh, Mumford also picks up on this idea. And it's again, this, this interesting argument that basically um, tools were one thing we played with uh, and more and more it became dominant so much so that we forgot about all the other things we're capable of doing. Um, so again, this sort of retroactive, uh, we could be more than technological beings, but we've sort of settled on that's what we are. Right, and this is where you get into the leisure as liberation idea, right? And the fact yeah. that technology is bad because it's giving us everything we want. What what is it about that that's such a bad dynamic? Why why is it bad that we are being, you know, given all of this uh, playtime with technology that you know <laughs> arguably we are addicted to it? You know, if we are yeah. having a fun, if we're having fun, and we are playing, then are we fulfilling the evolutionary needs from Mumford? You know, as he describes it. So what is it about this dynamic that is a negative for us? Yeah. Um... So again, this was part of the problem for me I was trying to, again, this is why I turned to uh, the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, because mm. um, I, I didn't want to play the game of what's good, what's bad. Um, and I think Nietzsche is really good. <laughs> See, you can't, you can't help it. Uh, Nietzsche is, is very helpful uh, for helping to illuminate um, this language. Uh, so I think this is why I tried to land on um, on the one hand, about sort of what's healthy and what's unhealthy, as opposed to a value distinction around good, bad, good, evil. Um, but on the other hand, I wanted to think about it in terms of um, 
because again, we are so uh, ready, willing, and able to embrace the technological being as the human being, um, then we lose sort of the distance necessary to even evaluate our relationship to technology. So this for me was really the starting point, was this idea of how can I even judge technology when I'm embedded in it? Um, and I think, again, this is part of why it was important to me as an, as an American uh, now living in the Netherlands, that ability uh, to sort of see your own culture from outside is sort of, again, how do we do that with a technological culture, right? What's, what's outside of that anymore? Um, and I'm, uh, you know, old enough, as my students remind me, uh, that I grew up before the internet. Um, so I, I uh, didn't have internet till high school. We were one of the first to get it. I worked at an internet company in high school. My friends and I started one in a janitor's closet in our high school. So I, I really grew up with it. Um, but it was, uh, I think, very important for me um, that when I grew up with it, it was having already lived 16 years without it. Uh, so I could have that sort of transitional understanding um, that my students, when we talk, you know, I say things like, do you remember the first time uh, Google Maps told you turn right and you did it? And I say, no, because I grew up with my parents doing that. Um, and again, it's such a, you know, it, mm. a shock to me how much it really is embedded in their daily lives, that they, they have no concept of before. Um, so that, again, was for me important for where philosophy is helpful, is, again, this idea that it, it shows us um, a time and a way of thinking different than our own, yeah. so that it, we can try to get outside, uh, at least historically, right? Or actually so if, get outside. Yeah, so if we had a few <laughs> thousand years... Uh, where we didn't think we were technological beings. And we've only got a couple decades where we think we are. That, that seemed kind of important to me. Mm. Yeah, it's funny you say that. I always tell friends, I've, I just turned 35 and I'm, I'm of the age enough that I remember the first 14, 15, 16 years of my life without really having technology. I mean, I was a, a gamer. I played Nintendo and yeah. all those things, but a large majority of my time was spent doing other activities and I'm very thankful for that. And, you know, as you're talking, it makes me think in a weird way that our, our generation is probably one of the last who can really look at this problem in a, in a serious way because we were born into it. We, we actually yeah, like yeah. evolved our minds with the other world. And now we live in this one. That's just an aside, I guess, but I, where I'm going with that is what, what is the thing that we are losing? What is the aspect of being human, perhaps, that we're losing sight of as we pull ourselves more into this technological landscape? Yeah, so um, it, it's, it's hard uh, for, for one answer. Sure. <laughs> it's easy, to, it's, it's a lot. Um, so Shannon Valor, for example, recently published a book on, on technology and um, Aristotle's approach. And she used this phrase of de-skilling um, to sort of try to capture what technology is doing to us. Um, 
luckily her book came out after mine, so I didn't I didn't have to uh, to use her argument. Um, but it is interesting that it 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 does seem like a growing concern people have, right? What are we losing? And again, this question of how can we even see what we're losing, right? Um, so in my nihilism and technology book, my concern was primarily um, using again Nietzsche's framework uh, from his genealogy of morals. Um, this idea that we are losing uh, certain characteristics, right? And that again, this wasn't new to technology, which was also important to me. This um, I didn't want to say this is all technology's fault. You know, we were we were a utopian time, and then technology is the is the downfall, right? Um, so it's also important to me that technology, internet technology in particular, arrives out of a desire. Right. So it, it had to manifest out of something already. Um, so this seemed to be a desire, again, uh, as I put it in my book, to sort of escape reality is sort of the big picture version of it. Um, and again, you can see this uh, not surprisingly coming out of the 80s, uh, coming out of the Reagan years, coming out of, again, this feeling of, uh, you know, we're trapped in a certain kind of life, there's there's no hope. Uh, you're either going to become, you know, a coked up businessman on Wall Street, uh, go into the military, um, or you know, go into the suburbs, and you know, it's it's just kind of which kind of sad, quiet death do you want, right? <laughs> um, and then the internet came along, uh, and again, like you mentioned, gamer culture was clearly a big driver here. Um, that you could really explore other worlds. And again, this, this already existed in literature, obviously. Um, and this is, again, why it's important that here at the University of Twente, we have a um, primary approach to philosophy of technology known as mediation theory. So again, this idea that um, you know, the, the means, the methods, the, the mediation uh, really does matter, right? So escapism through literature and escapism through video games and escapism through virtual reality goggles. They're not the same escapism. Um, so it is important, um, you know, if I pick up uh, Moby Dick and you pick up Moby Dick, we could have a conversation about that. Mm -hmm. If I pick up uh, a Mario uh, game controller, you pick up a Mario game controller, we're sharing an escapism together. Um, but even if we're wearing Oculus goggles, we're in different worlds, right? Uh, we can inhabit the same. We don't need to. So again, it's interesting, this, this increasing uh, cocooning off, right? So people always talk about filter bubble. Um, but that's primarily about informational bubbling. Um, but I do think it's important to sort of existential bubbling as well. The sort of, I want, and I again, it's important. I was there when all these sort of chat programs first arrived, IRC and AOL and all that stuff. Um, when these chat rooms started, you know, this, this feeling, I'm not trapped in my uh, backwards high school. I can find other people like me, right? Um, and again, this idea that um, this was seen, of course, as, uh, as liberation. Again, like you mentioned, my, my claim. Um, but my worry was again that that you then lose any need um, to sort of struggle that we had been doing before, 
uh, with the people actually around you, mm-hmm. right? That you could just ignore them. And this grows to, I can also ignore social problems, political problems, because I can inhabit the utopia of my dreams. Um, and so this also inspires at the same time, increasingly an individualism, right? Uh, which importantly, people like Hannah Arendt point out since the 1950s, at least, um, is, is a dangerous direction we're going into because, again, going back to this, what does it mean to be human question, um, as much as we may or may not be technological beings, it seems fundamentally that we are social beings, right? And again, this idea that sociality online exists, I don't want to challenge that, but it's not the same uh, sociality as face-to-face communication. And again, COVID really has brought this to bear. Um, you know, I teach online, I teach on campus now simultaneously. Um, and it's amazing how different the experiences are, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're, not, uh, they're not easily uh, even comparable, right? Because again, being able to simply see body language, uh, being able to have, and again, this sort of question that you asked about what are we losing, um, the spontaneity, right? Um, it's it's incredibly important for Hannah Arendt uh, that a big part of what it means to be human is to embrace spontaneity um, and to again fight uh, predictability. So again, when you think about uh, fear of algorithms, uh, algorithms only have any power to the degree that we're predictable. Um, so again, it's this idea going back to Nietzsche that this is this is why we should be afraid of uh, becoming so so predictable in our lives. And again, this this isn't a product of the internet. It's just it's just it's uh, all of those things on steroids. Yeah, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but as you were saying that, it's got me thinking: Would your philosophy on this stuff change at all if we fast forwarded? 20 years into the future and we had ourselves as avatars stumbling sporadically and spontaneously through an environment where we have full presence where we do see body language where we where the virtual reality is such that that immersive social spontaneity aspect is there like do you think that's going to evolve or is that kind of just more utopianism thinking where technology is going to solve another problem yeah yeah, it's interesting because now, now that I have a son, uh, and again that we live in a uh, uh, a college town for a technical university, there's there's technical stuff going on all the time because uh, the Dutch really like festivals, and uh, so we have all these tech festivals, and uh, I get to see him uh, putting on the VR goggles and how excited he is, and again this this. Um, uh, you do get uh, enraptured by it, right? Um, I, I've tried it, but because I wear glasses, it doesn't work as well for me. Um, uh, but it is interesting for him. Um, you know, you try to get him to turn it off. And uh, just trying to get him aware of the outside world is, again, really, really difficult. So I do think it's important, this idea that even if, we are able to replicate in um, virtual reality anything resembling Zuckerberg's metaverse dream. 
uh, or anyone else's VR dream. Um, you know, it's again, this sort of, as long as we have bodies, uh, and as long as we have a world those bodies exist in, um, there has to be some sort of, uh, you know, disconnect that's dangerous. Uh, when you when you want to be fully immersed in a VR world, um, and again, it's it's not an accident. I think how popular that um, that dog drinking coffee with the "this is fine" uh, that that meme has become so popular, because again, that that is what VR is promising, right? Like you you could you could be happy in a world on fire, mm-hmm. um, and again, I think it's important. Um, that we are increasingly uh, putting the world on fire at the same time that we are increasingly advancing in VR technology. And these these are not accidental parallels. Yeah. Is is your concern here then? It feels like it's twofold. One, that we're basically apathetic to the problems of the world, and therefore allowing major issues to just go unchecked and basically become exacerbated. And also, I feel like a lot of the uh, like alchemical Carl Jung, like in Filth, it shall be found, or uh, like uh, the Greeks, they say the obstacle is the way, um, or Nassim Taleb, you know, his idea of anti-fragility. It seems a lot of your idea also centers around this notion of we're not struggling anymore, we're too comfortable. And that's, you know, I guess in an evolutionary sense, like an immune system, it's good to struggle. We we need exposure to bacteria. We need challenge to help us grow as individuals. And without that, we're basically like atrophying. So would that like atrophy and apathy kind of be like the central tenets of, of what you think is happening here? Yeah, I think it's important, again, this idea that we, we uh, not even just grow as individuals, but grow as a community, right? Mm. Um, that it is important, again, uh, there was a time, as hard as it might be for listeners to believe, that you couldn't Google things. Uh, and if I if I wanted to know something, uh, I had to like seek people out and and ask. Uh, and again, this was a way to develop relationships. Um, that now we we uh, instead have these relationships with Google. Um, and of course, when I say that, my phone turns on and and tries to talk to me. Um, so again, this idea um that it's it's always uh, a caricature as um okay so you're you're saying uh war is good um people hurting is good pain is good um but again a challenge doesn't have to rise to that level to be something you can grow from right so again it's this idea of um are you capable of um uh being forced out of your comfort zone basically and again the question is how expansive is that comfort zone and does technology allow you to basically turn again going back to vr uh reality itself into a comfort zone so it's important um again this idea that if i'm inhabiting a space even if i was able to have some sort of embodiment experience online in vr um, if I don't like the space, I turn it off. Yeah. Um, like when you play a video game and you hit the reset button, 
so again, it's important <laughs> that life doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. um, and that rather trying to make it so life does work that way, uh, that we instead embrace um, the value of it not working that way. So I think, again, that's the, the danger of the tech solutionism is, again, that it, it sort of warps our sense of what a problem even means. Yeah, I think I agree with that because I've definitely been concerned about the fact that people kind of fall into thinking patterns based on the technology where everything is controllable in, in a virtual world. And it's very binary. And like you said, controlled and constrained and rigid. It doesn't have a lot of spontaneity. And, you know, I think it's impossible to argue that our brains are constantly shifting to adapt to their environment. And if that's the environment we're spending 10 hours a day in, then when we step into the world, we're shocked that the US government or nature isn't under our control, isn't good or bad. You know, like we, we see through those dynamics. So, I mean, it sounds reasonable to me. <laughs> <laughs> Do you um do you think that you know Nietzsche's idea of nihilism can potentially fall apart in any ways due to modernity and, and by that I mean while philosophy is often timeless in some sense this is unprecedented you know that the, the world we live in now is rapidly changing in a way that is very hard to have predicted if you were Plato or Aristotle or even somebody as recent as Nietzsche do you think that there might be aspects there that need to be updated or that you think you haven't been able to use that lens to address? Yeah. Um, well, that's, that's really what my book is trying to do okay, um, is to, is to update. Cause again, it's, it's tempting, uh, to simply say, uh, don't read my book, read Nietzsche. Um, and I've, I've gotten that, uh, question after I've given talks as well, like, well, you know, can't we just read Nietzsche then? Um, so I do think it's important that even when talking about uh, nihilism as a uh, experience that transcends the contemporary world, um, that doesn't mean, again, that all nihilisms are the same, right? So in my, my MIT nihilism book, I tried to go deeper into like what is nihilism itself. Um, but in the nihilism and technology book, it was important for me this idea that the diagnosis of nihilism uh, that Nietzsche offers uh, structurally could be applied to our contemporary issues, but the content had to be updated. So I did think it was important, um, again, this idea that when he talks about self-hypnosis, for example, that seemed obviously to have parallels um, in falling down YouTube holes and this kind of thing. Um, but it is important that his examples are, again, things like drinking beer. Um, so you don't want to just immediately say, as people do, um, even today, you know, like, oh, we're, we're addicted to technology. Um, and then assume that when we talk about addiction to alcohol or addiction to drugs, that that's the same addiction. So I, I do think it's, again, important that we be careful, which I know will be shocking for a philosopher to say, because uh, it keeps me employed, um, that we be careful with our language here um, and that the metaphors we use are, are really uh, important, but they can also be dangerous. Yeah, and, and you say the solution to all this. I want to look forward, I guess, a little bit now that we've looked back um, and kind of reviewed where we've been. 
you say that the cure for this nihilism is to embrace responsibility. <clears throat> what does that look like to you? Yeah, um, <laughs> it's complicated. Um, so again, my my first book, the one nobody read, uh, which is which isn't shocking since it was a book on uh, military suicide, uh, a real page turner, um, <laughs> was again trying to sort of understand uh, responsibility, um, and again how that uh, concept has changed um, in war, but also in peace. Um, so I, I tried to have this provocative title about from the humanity of war to the inhumanity of peace with this idea that basically responsibility um, isn't uh, best understood or even safely understood in what I think of as sort of the contemporary paradigm of it as uh, basically a, a, um, a causality thesis, right? If, if I caused it, then I'm responsible for it. Um, and again, that leads then to an ability, uh, which again, as a father, you see as children often, uh, you say, you know, who did that? I didn't do it. Right. So again, it's, but couldn't you have picked it up anyway? And it's like, but I didn't do it. Right. Um, and you see this when people talk now about things like critical race theory, this sort of, why are we talking about slavery? I didn't do it. Right. Why are we why are we talking about racism? I didn't do it. Right. So it's, again, this sort of um, don't blame me. Um, and I thought it was important, again, that um, these philosophers, again, during World War Two, were trying to think about uh, responsibility as something that sort of um, manifests itself, again, in a wartime situation differently not as um, whether I can be held responsible or whether I can avoid responsibility, but again, more in the taking responsibility. And the idea that you not just want to take responsibility, but have no choice but to take responsibility. So J. Glenn Gray, uh, the philosopher I use most in my dissertation and my first book, uh, had this idea of different levels of responsibility that ranged from the personal all the way to the metaphysical. So this idea that, uh, you know, when we talked about, for example, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, this happened before I was born. But as a member of the human species, I can still feel responsible. for it. And that's, again, not crazy, right? It's, it's, it makes sense. And it's, again, uh, for my first book, the worry was, why do we, uh, why are we so quick to uh, say that people who do feel responsible, that they're the crazy ones. And that the rest of us who say like, oh, you know, that happened before my time, that's normal, right? So again, thinking about PTSD, in my first book, I wanted to grasp this idea that um, maybe who's crazy and who's sane is really more of a numbers game, right? Um, and that uh, the people who go around hypervigilant all the time, afraid that they're going to die all the time, uh, that actually makes perfect sense because we really could die at any moment. That's, that's not crazy to, to worry about. Um, and so again, it was this idea that that's a, a form of responsibility, right? That you're able to respond, that that's, that's really what is being grasped, right? So the Dutch word for responsibility 
I'm, I'm not going to try to just say it. I've, I've only been here six years. Um, <laughs> it, it is much closer to answerability. Mm. So again, it's, it's really that sort of, um, it's an activity um, that has a sort of existential dimension to it that I, I feel uh, my uh, entanglement with the world, my embeddedness in the world. And rather than, again, the connection to nihilism, rather than escape from it or try to avoid it, I embrace it uh, because, again, that's part of what it means to be human, is to, to recognize uh, what I could respond to and what it means to not respond to. Yeah, you know, this relates a lot to what we actually do here at Singularity. And and one of the things is, you know, the, the issues kind of like your university are so big that we seek these problems or these ways that we can solve these problems with technology. And part of that first step towards that direction is saying uh, you need a mindset shift. You need to view the world kind of differently. And in a way, that's really kind of teaching responsibility is what we're initially setting people up for but i guess my question is <clears throat> how do we get people to feel responsible or even empowered enough to tackle issues that are so big you know when you come home from a day where you've just worked nine to five where you're raising your kids where inflation's going crazy where you can't afford a house how do we turn around and say hey hey you don't deserve any hedonism no netflix and chilling for you you need to now worry about climate change and all these things that are at such a scale, at such a scale that it's incomprehensible to even understand where you can begin. How, you know what I mean? Like that, how do yeah. we get that ask or how do we make, how do we feel justified in making that ask of people? Yeah. Well, that's really the biggest question. Um, and I think it's, again, this is part of the danger Hannah Arndt was trying to point out to us about individualism. Right, that we that we again feel um, that climate change, uh, COVID, the war in Ukraine, um, either I have to take this on, or it's impossible for me to take this on, so I don't care. Um, so again, it's important. What does it mean uh, that we live in a world where again? Uh, that we are so individualized, so atomized, that that's the response, right? Um, which, which means, again, I don't want to blame uh, people who want uh, to come home and Netflix and chill. That's, that's not my, my goal, right? Uh, but rather to understand how we arrive in a world where that's what happens. Mm. Um, so again, I use Nietzsche in my book. I could have used Karl Marx and instead had a much different um, trajectory, but a similar uh, concept about rather than nihilism being the focus, capitalism being the focus, right? Um, that again, it's not an accident that in Marx's alienated labor, he's, he's already describing things that we experience today. Um, and that again, it's not an accident that as you put it, that if you come home from a nine to five, that that's that is grasp uh, that that uh, makes it so you cannot grasp the world, right? Like that world is nine to five, um, and so of course I'm I'm going to care about my own private kingdom, my own McMansion, whatever it is, um, and that's why again it has to be something about 
how do we reinvigorate uh, a social domain? How do we reinvigorate politics? So again, it's important already in the 1950s for Hannah Arendt um, that politics had become a dirty word, um, that politics was increasingly replaced by bureaucracy, um, and that we feel like, uh, I don't want to have anything to do with it. I, I vote uh, once a year. I vote once every four years. That's my, my role. And the elected leaders, they deal with it, right? Um, so it's not shocking then that uh, we are being driven increasingly to, well, if we're going to replace politics with bureaucrats, replace bureaucrats with algorithms, um, and that this is the world we're creating now. So again, uh, my individual role is going to be uh, every once in a while I participate, uh, I tweet a hashtag, I retweet, I donate, and I'm done, right? Mm -hmm. that's, that's my part, I'm done. And if you want more from me, that's unfair, right? Uh, why should I have to do it when nobody else is doing it? So it's again this sort of um, me first individualistic approach which is why, again, it has to be more about uh, not going, <laughs> I think this is how my colleagues think of me, uh, not going door to door, um, chastising people, saying like, no, 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 turn off the Netflix, get outside, you know? Um, but instead, thinking about why is the world structured in such a way that that's what we're driven to do? And again, this is, this is something I do too. I'm not trying to say that I'm, uh, you know, that I don't have a Netflix account. Right. So people always try to do a gotcha with me, like, oh, you're on Twitter. So how could you be diagnosing this? Whereas for me, it's like, well, how could I be diagnosing it if I wasn't on Twitter? Right. Yeah. So I'm uh, again, like Nietzsche, I'm I'm as disease ridden as the rest of us. Um, but it's more about trying to appreciate this as a cultural disease. Uh, again, using Nietzsche's phrase, not an individual yeah, and as as a cultural disease, do you lean towards a certain domain for the change to begin? Like, it sounds like you're obviously leaning towards something grassroots, but is there an impetus on the government in particular, or on tech companies in particular, to step in and say, "Hey, we're obviously hijacking people's attention with all these red numbers and these like casino-like swiping mechanisms." Should we maybe not do this so people can step outside and try to stop the world from burning? Like who, who is the impetus on? Because to some extent, I think the challenge is individuals right now are largely almost victimized by this very oppressive and addictive world. And it's very hard to step outside of it and find that power in yourself. And yet we need the individuals, I feel like, to put the pressure on the institutions so how do how does all that move forward in your mind? Yeah, that was uh, the. This is why I'm not good at writing conclusions because uh, <laughs> it's 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 always expected. Like, okay, so what's the big answer? Yeah, and solve, I always solve the world's problems. No yeah, <laughs> and I always say, well, I I did philosophy because we we ask questions, we never answer them. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I am frequently, uh, bombarded by requests for, you know, what should we do? Um, and I do think it's important, uh, as you said, that there has to be some sort of bottom up pressure. Um, and it is important, um, 
again, thinking about the role that tech companies play in this and governments play in this. Uh, Jacques Ellul, another important philosopher of my work, um, pushing this idea already in the 50s and 60s of technocracy, right? That technocracy does not mean, um, and this is really important, I think, to understand, technocracy does not mean rule of tech companies. Uh, it means instead they're the ones who have power, but that doesn't mean they want to use it. So there has basically been created this giant vacuum uh, because of how uh, the technological world, as we talked about at the beginning, has, has grown. Uh, you cannot have uh, any real political decision-making power today unless you understand tech companies. Mm. But the only ones who understand tech companies are tech companies. Uh, so increasingly, you get people running for office uh, who have Silicon Valley experience, uh, or they say, uh, I'm going to fight Silicon Valley. And then you have uh, the spectacle like we saw when Zuckerberg was called before Congress, mm. and he's just playing with them, right? Mm. And they're, they're, they're asking what they think of his tough questions. And he's just, you know, if he was capable of laughing it off, he's laughing it off. Yeah. Um, and when they say things to him, like, so do you think you have more responsibility than the U.S. government? And he's just like, yeah, like, of course. Um, he's probably right. Yeah. In some and ways. it's, again, this idea that, you know, Apple, uh, Facebook, Twitter, uh, TikTok increasingly um, have vast amounts of power. We see this, in, uh, especially now in the war between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, where where Zelensky is pleading not just with governments but with tech companies, saying help us, right? You know, turn off uh, your your products in Russia or at least use them constructively to help us, right? So again, you can imagine um, if you're Zuckerberg, you're um, you know someone who dropped out of college because you found a way to make money. Um, you have no desire and no ability to be a political leader. Um, and until it becomes, again, like you mentioned, it's like pressured from below and above, um, they're not gonna do anything, because why would they, right? Um, if you're trying to create a metaverse, then really you're not gonna try to fair, uh, fix this universe uh, until or unless it gets in the way of your metaverse. Um, so again, it's important, this idea um, that, yes, I, I do want people uh, to put pressure, but the question is, well, how do you do that outside of tech companies? Mm. So it seems like, uh, you know, if I want, um, you know, to put pressure on Google, um, I have no tools other than to tweet about it, uh, post about it on Facebook. Uh, try to get likes on Instagram, right? It's again, you know, what are you're 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 in the bubble. You can't get out, um, and you can you can see why after all these years, there's such an appeal uh, still to things like Fight Club, um, and this like again that nihilistic, just blow it all up mentality. Um, so I I do think that that reveals again people's frustration, right? Mm. Um, I don't know what to do. I'm stuck between uh, blow it all up, become completely apathetic, 
or uh, you know, hope I can fix it from within. Um, and those are my options. Um, but I do think it's important again this idea that if you if you think about these protest movements uh, like Black Lives Matter, like again with the war in Ukraine, um, even uh, things like the freedom uh, truckers, um, there clearly are grassroots there there are grassroots movements, and there are clearly people who are embracing not necessarily the ideologies behind them. Mm-hmm. as much as I think the collectivism behind it. Yeah. And I think this is really how some people get, you know, again, radicalized, um, either on left, right, center, is because there is such a desire, such a need to be around other people. Yeah. Um, and again, it's not an accident that, uh, you know, Trump really embraced the rally as, as a political weapon. Um, and you can see how powerful that was because it clearly appealed to the masses uh, to be the masses. <laughs> yeah, it was, it, regardless of uh, how it was executed, it was a beacon of meaning in an otherwise meaningless world. Right. Do you think that there is a cultural narrative or a technology that you're hopeful about? Like, is there a path forward or some kind of mechanism that you think if leveraged could uh, garner a lot of benefits? Yeah. Um, well, this is again, uh, you know, if you look at uh, like Zeta Dufecki's, uh Twitter and tear gas, you know, that it's, it's, it's not, um, we are not without examples of revolutionary movements like Tahrir Square, uh, where social media clearly was important to the, to the struggle. Um, and this is something, again, that uh, philosophers like Andrew Feinberg were arguing in the 80s, 90s, and still today, um, that technologies have the ability uh, to be used for lots of different purposes. Uh, they've been sort of captured by capitalism, but they don't have to be, right? So again, it's, this is why it's so important to Feinberg that uh, the progress of technologies is historically contingent. It's not determined, it's not necessary. Um, that we can uh, appreciate the, the role that humans make in decision-making, which means importantly, we can make different decisions. Mm. So uh, there's no reason that uh, Twitter uh, has to be a weapon of uh, militarism and propaganda and oppression, it could be used for other purposes. That's that's the Feinberg argument. My argument uh, in an article I published recently criticizing him um, is again that it's it's sort of naive uh, to sort of think that well, if people rather than companies um, were the driving force, that things would necessarily get better. Because um, I think it 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 misses the degree to which people who do suffer um, trolling, um, swatting, piling on uh, on social media, that that's not corporate driven. It's it's people driven, and that the people who are suffering then turn to the company to protect them, mm-hmm. um, and say, you know, you got to get the Nazis off the Twitter. You got to get uh, you know these these hate mongers off of here. Um, so I do think it's important. It cannot simply be um, people versus companies. 
there has to be again, and this is what I was trying to do in my book, an understanding of what it is that drives people um, to capitalism, to nihilism, to any form of self-destruction, um, and to appreciate that those forces are real, that those forces exist independently of technologies, but that technologies uh, really make them mutate out of control. So that even when we try uh, to take advantage of social media tools, um, you know, for revolutionary purposes, for just community building purposes, the nature of the social media companies, the nature of the social media platform um, does not accidentally tend towards these kinds of activities, right? Um, so there again, there has to be some understanding of even things like anonymity, um, which we've been wrapping our heads around for 20 years now, the dangers of, of anonymity online. Um, and again, this is part of why I think I'm always partial to face-to-face -face communication, because it is really important the degree to which it's hard to be anonymous and it's hard to avoid responsibility because of it. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm happy, I guess, uh, if, I'm, if I try to be positive in my answer to your question, uh, the degree to which social media could maybe bring people together for face-to-face -face networking, uh, organizing, community building. Um, but then that means that you get off of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know we're coming up on time here and I don't want to undermine what could potentially be ending <laughs> on a somewhat positive note, but do you have any uh, closing thoughts or anything you'd like to point any of your listeners to maybe something you're doing in your lab or the article you recently wrote? Yeah. Well, the, the, the last uh, article I published was about um, COVID and uh, uh, the title is accommodating ourselves to death. And uh you know, again, this idea on the one hand, the Neil Postman uh, amusing ourselves to death, but again, this idea that we really are, um, importantly, uh, I turn to Ian Bogust. I, I apologize if that's not how you pronounce his name. Um, the, uh, the, the tech writer for The Atlantic, um, who, who pointed out early in the COVID pandemic that basically we were already living in quarantine. Um, so we were well prepared, right? Mm. Um, and this is why it's so important the degree to which people are saying, well, we should keep doing this, right? We should, we should keep working from home. We should keep Zoom meetings. Um, and I really try to point out that that's, that's dangerous, right? That I, I think it really is um, a disaster waiting to happen, if, if not already. Uh, the degree to which, one, we were already in quarantine. And two, the degree to which we're happy to stay there. So it's it's sort of interesting the degree to which people focus um, again their protests about masking, um, but not about zooming. So I I do think that uh, you know I share uh, the concern when are we ever going to get out of this pandemic? Um, but I'm worried the degree to which we're not appreciating what the pandemic has revealed to us about sort of the disaster we were already in to begin with.